0: Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But I say to you that, listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. expecting nothing in return your reward will be great and you will be children of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked be merciful just as your father is merciful do not judge and you will not be judged do not condemn and you will not be condemned forgive and you will be forgiven Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of Life We give thanks for your word and for these words in particular be with us this morning as we reflect upon them so that we might be transformed in heart mind and soul amen everyone who spends time with the scriptures develops their own canon with the canon These are the certain texts that speak to each of our hearts more clearly than the others. Today's reading is at the very core of my canon. This passage and those like it, the ones that place love at the center of Christian practice, these form the lens through which I perform every act of scriptural interpretation. Now on the one hand, that meant that I was very excited to see this passage coming up in the lectionary. On the other hand, do any of you have something that you get so excited about that when you get a chance to talk about it, you just sort of start babbling? That's kind of how I feel about this passage and all of the things that come from it. So let me start by focusing in on two particular verses. In verses 32 and 33, Christ says, If you love those who love you, What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. The reason that I want to focus in on these questions is because they provide some concreteness to what Christ is teaching. It's one thing to hear the phrase, love your enemies. It's another thing to start asking what that actually looks like. Sometimes when we're dealing with these weighty sorts of questions, it can help us to receive them in new ways. I wanna share with you a bit of a story titled Children of the Grave. This story is actually a comic written by Clinton's own Tom Waltz. In case you're not familiar with it, I'm gonna share part of the blurb from the back cover of the trade copy so that you can have a sense of what the story is about. Children of the Grave is the harrowing story of Team Orphan, a United States Special Forces team made up of three hardened warriors who have been tasked with the assassination of Colonel Akbar Hassan, a maniacal terrorist guilty of genocide on a massive scale, especially against the children of his enemies. As the story unfolds, mysteries abound as supernatural forces reveal the complicated and tragic backstories of the protagonists and of the genocidal Colonel Assan. Of Colonel Assan, in particular, we learn that the conflict he now wages is the continuation of generations of violence between two ethnic groups. Then, as the story nears its climax, the spectral figures of Asan's mother and father appear to him. The scene unfolds like this. Asan's mother says to him, The time has come for all this to end. The time has come for you to leave with us. Asan replies with confusion, But how? You were murdered. How? How is this possible? His parents respond to his questions. All things are possible, my son, and many things are not as they seem. You have embarked on a terrible journey of revenge, Akbar, and we have come to correct your path, to rectify the mistaken choices you have made. We are here to save you from the past, my child. Asan, still struggling to come to terms with what is happening, asks, to save me? Mistaken choices? but it it was always for you, you were butchered, I was there, I saw. They came from the mountains, the Kiloponnese, and murdered you both in cold blood. They burned our village to the ground. How? How could I not avenge you? His mother responds, Yes, Akbar, we were killed by the Kiloponnese, but not these Kiloponnese. These are only children, just as you were when we were taken from you, my son. You never deserved the loss you were forced to suffer. Neither did they. Asan is still trying to justify his actions, so he counters, but they are the children of the guilty. They must pay for the sins of their fathers. They must pay as, and his father interrupts. Yes, son, the Kiloponnes killed us. And before that, we killed the Kiloponnes. And on, and on, and on. We are, all of us guilty, Akbar. Finally, his mother concludes, it is a vicious cycle of violence and murder that must be put to an end. Then, in the most significant twist on the way that these tales go, the protagonists don't kill the antagonist. It seems in so many stories like this one, even though the message says one thing, the actions of the protagonist immediately demonstrate that they still value retribution. What Tom captures so well in his storytelling is that using violence to bring an end to violence only furthers the cycle. It only creates more hatred and suffering. Of course, we don't have to turn to fiction to find examples of this lesson. Representative John Lewis worked with one of his advisors, Andrew Aden, to publish a series of graphic novels titled March. This three book collection tells the story of the civil rights movement from Lewis's perspective. His story shows the many times he ended up in jail, the times that he brushed up against death, and how significant the philosophy of nonviolence was to keeping everything together. One of the things that I find so refreshing about this telling of the movement is that he speaks about the many people that were involved in the movement, those like Diane Nash, Reverend Jim Lawson, Stokely Carmichael, Dr. King, and many more. In book one, we get a glimpse of the training that Lewis and others had received from Jim Lawson. Lewis says, Lawson taught us to protect ourselves, how to disarm our attackers by connecting with their humanity how to protect each other, how to survive. But the hardest part to learn, to truly understand deep in your heart, was how to find love for your attacker. And I believe that the key to that statement lies in the clause by connecting with their humanity. Finding love for your enemies isn't easy, but it's the key to rejecting the same hatred that lives in their hearts To find love for one's enemies is to remember that they are created in the image of God. It is to see that the hatred in their heart is not the totality of who they are, but a sickness that drives them to madness." Later in Book 2, Lewis recounts how Reverend Lawson was pushed to the margins of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. It's at this point that Lewis brings up the fact that Lawson had written the Statement of Purpose for their group. In part, the statement reads Through nonviolence, courage displaces fear. Love transforms hate. Acceptance dissipates prejudice. Hope ends despair. Peace dominates war. Faith reconciles doubt. Mutual regard cancels enmity. Justice for all overthrows injustice. The redemptive community supersedes systems of gross social immorality. Love is the central motif of nonviolence. Love is the force by which God binds man to himself and man to man. Such love goes to the extreme. It remains loving and forgiving even in the midst of hostility. It matches the capacity of evil to inflict suffering with an even more enduring capacity to absorb evil. all all the while persisting in love. You see, love is not some wishy-washy force. Love is the essence of God's being. It has the power to topple governments, and yet the softness to mend wounds. Love is the thing that keeps us human It is the thing that lets us see the divine worth in others. It's the thing that binds all of creation together. So when we give up on loving our enemies, we start down the path to not loving our neighbors. When we accept hate as a useful tool, we stop seeing the usefulness of love. There's a saying that says, when you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Well, when you start using hate as a tool, every person starts to look like an enemy. Every disagreement becomes a declaration of war. As I watched the prayers and worship of General Conference yesterday, I decided to get on social media to see if anything was being said by people who were there. I was disappointed when I opened Twitter and saw people up in arms over the fact that the church was taking a day of prayer before getting to the business at hand. These people are so ready for a fight that they would set aside the chance to invoke the blessings of God. They're so quick to get to the debate that they would overlook the human element of it all. This was a chance to worship our God in a truly global service, representing all the regions of the globe where there are United Methodists. But in the name of diversity, they would rush through a celebration of diversity. When we let hate become a part of our arsenal, we stop seeing one another as siblings in Christ, and we see each other as adversaries to be overcome. This is the insidious nature of hatred. It slowly pushes the love out of our hearts so that we don't even see it happening. At the age of 72, John Wesley was troubled by a development within his Methodist societies. There were a growing number who were pushing for a separation with the Church of England. This prompted John to write a sermon that was simply titled, On Schism. In this sermon, he makes quite clear his feelings about any divisions in the church. He writes, it is evil in itself to separate ourselves from a body of living Christians with whom we were before united, is a grievous breach of the law of love. It is the nature of love to unite us together, and the greater the love, the stricter the union. And while this continues in strength, nothing can divide those whom love has united. It is only when our love grows cold that we can think of separating from our brethren. And this is certainly the case with any who willingly separate from their Christian brethren. The pretenses for separation may be innumerable, but want of love is always the real cause. Otherwise, they would still hold the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is therefore contrary to all those commands of God wherein brotherly love is enjoined, to that of St. Paul, let brotherly love continue, that of St. John, my beloved children love one another, and especially to that of our blessed Master. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Yea, by this saith he, shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. To summarize, by the time that we're withdrawing from each other, it's been a long time since we actually stopped loving each other. By the time we give voice to our feelings of discontent and resentment, we've harbored the seed of hatred within our hearts so that it has grown like a mighty oak. So be merciful to one another, not just in the big things, but also in the little things, so that they don't become big things. Don't give hatred a place to grow in your heart. Nurture the love of Christ that is within you. Let love be your Christian witness. Meet hatred with love. Meet fury with gentleness. Meet anxiety with patience. We see how hatred multiplies hatred whenever we turn on the news or see how people speak to one another online. Resist the ways of the world. Show the world a better way to be, a more holy way to live. Let love lead the world toward the kingdom. No one should ever have to ask, whether you follow Christ because it should be self-evident in the love that you have for all of God's creation. Amen.